what is your story when it comes to Jesus? What is your story? What is your testimony? What is your life before you knew Christ at all? What are some of the things that you tried that just didn't work? And then what was it like when you came to know Christ? What was a pivotal scripture verse perhaps? that the Spirit used to convict your heart for sin and convince you of the resurrection of Jesus. And by, by that Spirit, you came to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And according to Romans 10, 9, save you. And then what has life been like since? Both the freedoms and then your failures, followed by your redemptions. This is our story. This is our testimony and when it comes to Christian testimonies, we can often think of them as these milestones in our pasts, but I believe that we carry them with us forward, and I believe that every trial, every difficulty, even your failure becomes a new chapter in your testimony. We're never done with the gospel. We're never finished with it. It's not a monument that we left in our past and we just walk away from. It's a compass that we have in our hand. And by that gospel, by that same gospel that we believed long ago, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, by that same gospel that you believed when you were maybe a child. I was six years old when I was saved. And by that same gospel, I needed the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring healing to my heart when my son died. I needed that same gospel of Jesus Christ to get me through my own past struggles with alcohol. I needed that same gospel of Jesus Christ to navigate difficult, treacherous waters. I needed that same gospel of Jesus Christ to know what to do to raise these kids that are in my house. I need that same gospel of Jesus Christ to serve as the blueprint for how my marriage functions. I'm not done with the gospel. I was saved on April 16th, 1991. My story goes like this. I was six years old. My church was putting on a music thing about the gospel, and it was Easter time. It was 1991, so you still had some 80s hairstyles left. You guys know what I'm talking about? I can see it. I can see the heavy eyeshadow, and I can see the unnaturally curly hair, and I could see their fists in the air as they shouted, crucify, crucify, and little six-year-old me felt deep conviction for my sin because I said, I'm one of the bad guys. It was for my sin that Christ was crucified. And I was sitting on the front row of Heritage Baptist Church with my cousin Chad and my uncle Donnie saw that I was in tears. He took me back to see my parents. My mom and dad knew exactly what was going on. They'd been praying for this for a while. And my mom said, the music has touched his heart. God's calling, God's calling on our son. And so they, uh, they, they took me home. Pastor Spike Hogan, now at Chet's Creek Church in Jacksonville, Florida, came over to our house and just confirmed with the book of Romans what was already going on. He took took me through the book of Romans. He shared with me Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He shared with me Romans 6.23, the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He shared with me Romans 10.9. Have you heard me say this one before? I'm going to say it again. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, can you say it? Saved. And I've been saved ever since. Have I been perfect ever since? <laughs> no. <laughs> but you know who has been perfect? Who has never failed me? Who has never left me? Even when I failed him. Jesus has always been there. It's always been Jesus. He is ever faithful, ever good, ever loving. This is my testimony. This is my story. Since that time, I've lost a child and I struggled with alcohol to cope with my grief. But you know that he loved me through it and brought me to repentance? 
Did you know that he was faithful to me through depression? That he was faithful to me through difficulty? He was faithful to me in good times? He was faithful to me ever since? And he's, he's faithful to me right now. There came a time in my testimony when I was standing before the Redemption Church telling them what their testimonies might be. And then from that story, we saw more stories written. This is currently the most recent chapter of my testimony that God knew about before the foundations of the earth that came about on April 16th. 1991 and has led to this date, to this moment. And as you watch online, wherever you are, that's just, that's just the latest chapter in my story to what is your story? What is your story? You've heard mine and you're a part of it. I want to hear your story now. I want to help you develop your testimony as we're going through the book of Acts. As a church, we're going to go through the whole counsel of God together. And as we, as we do that, we use a sermon plan that works directly with a small group plan. If you're not in a small group, join one. If you need us to create one, click the button. Go to redemptionwashington.com and say, request the creation of a new group. And we'll build it around a shared affiliation or where your kids go to school or where you live, whatever you need. You let us know because if you're only hearing my sermons and you're not in a small group and you're not going through the devotions, you're hearing one third of the Bible. But if you're going through our sermons and you're doing your devotions, you're hearing two-thirds of the Bible. If you want to go through the whole counsel of God, you need to come to corporate worship. And then you need to gather in groups where you can discuss and you can ask questions. And then you need to read the Bible on your own. Buck up. Open your Bible. Go through the devotions. I've already given you a discipleship plan that goes through that. And our plan to go through the whole counsel of God has taken us to the book of Acts. This is Paul's testimony. All right, this is Paul's testimony. And man, it's known for its drama. If you've read Acts chapter nine, you know that there's, there's, a, there's a miracle in this testimony. I'll submit to you, there's a miracle in every testimony and every Christian testimony is miraculous. We saw Paul in Acts chapter seven, overseeing the first martyrdom of the New Testament. There was a man named Stephen. He was one of the original seven appointed to preach the gospel. And Stephen had this crowd close in on him. And as the stones were being thrown that extinguished his life, he prayed for the people who were throwing them at him. And he saw heaven open up. He saw Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, give him this heavenly standing ovation. And there is this cold-hearted young Pharisee lending his Pharisaical authority to the public murder of Stephen. And as people were coming and laying their coats at his feet, he was standing guard over them, lending credence to what was taking place, lending authoritative approval to the public killing of a Christian who was praying for his own murderers as they murdered him. That was Saul of Tarsus. And then comes Jesus. And this man who was persecuting the way, as we were called at that time, meets the resurrected Jesus. He's left blinded. Now we heard Luke's account in the opening of the book of Acts, where we largely follow the story of Peter. When we get to chapter seven, we see Saul of Tarsus for the first time. When we go to Acts chapter nine, you get just a brief glimpse of Paul's testimony. There are only like three verses in Acts chapter nine that tell the story. Now, Saul, largely going by his more Gentile, Roman-friendly name of Paul, is gonna tell his own story. And he's standing before 
He's standing before the Sanhedrin. He's standing before this authoritative council and he's giving his story. And so he's gonna now give us the behind the scenes of Acts chapter nine. We only had three verses to hear about this story from Paul's perspective in Acts chapter nine. Now he's gonna give us a very thorough, thorough description as he's defending himself in Jerusalem before the mob. This is Acts 22 beginning in verse six. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus, about noon, an intense light from the heavens suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I said, what should I do, Lord? The Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything that you have been assigned to do. So we just got additional insight into what happened in Acts chapter 9. This, this bright light was shining. Did you catch what time this light came about? It was at noon. Look at verse 6. How intense is that light that it shines at noon? As it's more intense than the noon sun in the desert climate around Damascus. That is a bright light. That's my Jesus. That's my Jesus. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice say to him, this is perfectly consistent with what we saw in Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then I think that the conversion moment takes place upon the utterance of the word, Lord. Who are you, Lord? This guy was tutored by Gamaliel, the most renowned rabbi in his day. Gamaliel was tutored by Hillel, the most renowned rabbi in his day. This guy likely had Genesis through Malachi memorized, but he didn't recognize the fulfillment of the word when he looked him face in the face. Do you have an encyclopedic knowledge of scripture, but you have no relationship with the Holy Spirit? You're like Saul before his encounter with Jesus. Who are you? Lord. Like, I don't know who you are, but I know enough to know that you are Lord. This is his moment of surrender. This is consistent with the book of Romans. It's beautiful to see the consistency between Acts and Romans. As Paul would write Romans, he would give us this manual on how to test and approve the will of God. And we can look in Acts chapter 16, and we can look in Acts chapter 22, and we can see how he is consistent with his own advice. You can look at Acts, and it's like the prequel to Romans. You can look at Acts, you can even see how what he philosophically describes in Romans, he practically implements in Acts. Who are you, Lord? I believe is the moment of Saul's conversion. He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you were persecuting. Now, did you catch this? There were, there, there were people with him. They saw the light, but... They, they didn't hear the voice of the one who was speaking to him. Are you the token Christian? Are you the token Christian in your workplace? They can see the light. They don't hear his voice yet. That's Saul here on the Damascus road. He's encountered Jesus and he knows that he's Lord. The people around him don't get it, but man, they're about to. They're about to. I said, what should I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, get up. It is amazing to me how often those words come up in scripture. Get up. You notice how many, how many healings in the book of Acts involve the words get up? It's, it's actually, when you think about it, it's actually really rude. 
walk up to someone who's been laying by a pool for years and say, get up. <laughs> like, apart from the spirit of God making that miraculous, that would be like the rudest thing ever. I think there's something to this. God calls us to get up. It's so easy to acquiesce to pain. Something dawned on me this week. The wording of, of 2 Corinthians 10, 5 Right, that we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. It never dawned on me just how militant those words are. It's easy to lay by the pool. It's easy to remain in paralysis. Jesus once asked a paralyzed man, do you want to get well? I think that was a serious question. Would you rather stay right here? Because you can wallow in this. Our culture used to be an honor-based culture where if you said something remotely insulting to my sister, like, well, obviously one of the two of us is gonna have to die at noon. That was the way things used to work. Now we try to rack up as many victim points as we can. I need sympathy because otherwise people expect results from me. And now I need to entitle myself to as much sympathy as possible and elevate my victim status. Now we live in a victim culture. And the more victim points you have, the more people ought to listen to what you have to say. And the more victim points that you have, the more you can excuse your lack of results in your life. And you can stay in a victim status. You can remain in a victim status, but Jesus said get up. He said, get up. You see, this call to win the war for the thoughts that are in our minds in 2 Corinthians 10, 5 is consistent with God's instructions in our testimony that tells us to get up. It is a militant act to take thoughts captive, treat them as hostile, and make them obedient to Christ. Those are fighting words, aren't they? And that takes cognitive fortitude that is painful because it would be easier just to sit there and acquiesce to the overwhelming waves of grief. I know, I've been there. It would be easier to anesthetize that pain with substances. It would be easier just to remain in that state. But he says, get up. He says, get up. I have shared the gospel with a ton of people in my life and there are a few of them that I've met who have said overtly, look, I even believe that what you're saying is true. I just don't want to stop partying. I don't want to get up. I, I, I want to stay in my sin. These sins are precious to me. It's really fun and I don't want to give my life to Jesus because if I give my life to Jesus, I got to repent from sin and I just choose my sin. And it's like, you're choosing hell over heaven, man. You're choosing your cancer. You're choosing, you're choosing condemnation over freedom. You think that you're free while you remain in your sin, but Jesus said, get up. It's hard. It takes, it takes cognitive fortitude that makes me wince at the thought, but it's something that I'm continually learning myself in the war against, man, mental pain, regrets from mistakes that I've made. It's hard, but we're called to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We're told from the very beginning of our testimonies to get up. So what happens, Jesse, if I give my life to Christ and I get up and then I fall down again? You get up again, amen. Well, you think it's God's, well, well, well you, fa you failed, you messed up, you made a mistake, just stay there till Jesus comes back. Lay down, wallow, here's some buckets of sympathy, I guess. <laughs> okay, Jesse, question. I, I fell down. What do I do now? <laughs> well, friend, you just keep on sinning. No, you get up. You get up again. 
and then you fall again, you get up again. If you, if you sin again, you repent again. You, you'll notice this. When you give your life to Christ, the fun of sin is just ruined for life. You've got this presence of the Holy Spirit there who brings conviction. And the stuff that you used to enjoy before, you can't enjoy anymore because there's this, there's this voice of the Spirit of God right there within you. You have these two natures waging war. Like Paul describes in Romans 7, this body of death, because when I want to do what God wants me to do, there's this other part of me that's right there with me waging war. This is going to go on the rest of your life until as you go through sanctification, you arrive one day at glorification and you go to heaven and the redemption church gathers and we eat the, the weird things that we eat like southern barbecue pork and weird Cuban sandwiches and then also the cabbage rolls from the Eastern Europeans and some Asian noodles all together in one meal. <laughs> And we celebrate, we praise God because you've passed into glory and your fight with that sin nature is done, but it's not done yet today. You know how I know that? Because you're still kicking. Until that day, you're going to continue to wage war with that sin nature. And when you fall, get up. When you sin, you repent. You can't just wallow in sin. The Holy Spirit will convict the living snot out of you because you're alive now. People who are alive tend to be uncomfortable in graves. And when we go back to our sin, it's like stepping back into the grave. We want to go back to our sin. Jesus said, get up. So he does what he's told to do. In verse 11, he says, since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and went to Damascus. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there, came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour, I looked up and saw him. And he said, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you delaying? Get up, there it is again. Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, all right? Go right now, pull out your smartphone. Nobody's gonna judge you for looking at your smartphone in church. They're gonna lift a hand of praise and they might even fill out a prayer request while you're doing that. I welcome you, go to redemptionwashington.com, fill out a connect card, check the second box and sign up for baptism. All right, the proverbial member of the Redemption Church, Rio Linda, who is waiting for his great aunt to be in attendance, has finally just decided to get baptized already. So it's September 26th. What are you waiting for? Get up, repent of your sins, give your life to Christ, be baptized. Indeed, what are you waiting for? This was Ananias' words to Paul. And we can see deeper insight in this passage than what Acts chapter 9 gave us. But in Acts chapter 9, there's a behind-the-scenes look at a discussion that actually happened between Ananias and God, where God told Ananias to go to Saul of Tarsus on Straight Street, a real street that still exists today. And it, you could see it on Google Maps. There are motorcycles parked alongside it. It's really cool. And God told Ananias to go and lay his hand on Saul. And then there's this discussion where Ananias, clearly, clearly God's missing something. God, let me, let me inform you. <laughs> that never goes well. He explains to God what God seems to have forgotten, that this guy has been going around killing followers of the way. But God sends Ananias in. And you can imagine it from Ananias' perspective. It, it won't be hard. 
especially if you're the token Christian in your division at Amazon. If you're the token Christian at Microsoft and you're on your team. If you're the token Christian in your workplace and God said, I want you to bring up the gospel to that coworker. And then you're like Ananias in Acts chapter nine. Yeah, but God, he tweets really anti-Christian stuff. And he already looks at me funny because when they went around passing out the rainbow pins and I said, no, thank you. I got on his hit list. I just know it, God. And at a Christmas party last year, I said Christmas and he corrected me holiday and now I'm self-conscious. This is Ananias in Acts chapter nine. Do you see it? This is the book of Acts. It's still happening today. But then aren't you grateful that Ananias had the guts to get up, to go into that room where Saul was? I mean, that would be like the equivalent to meeting a Taliban leader and lay your hand on him and call him brother. I mean, Saul was already overseeing the execution of Christians and had authority to arrest everyone who followed the way. Even, even women could be thrown in jail if they professed to follow the way. That was Saul. It's not that far from a Taliban leader. And then God says, there's a Taliban leader right there on Factoria Boulevard in that Starbucks. I want you to walk in, meet with him, call him your brother. You think he might have some Ananias words for God? (laughs) I don't know, God, this guy is pretty crazy. And he says, go, and you go, you meet with him. You lay your hand on his shoulder and you say, brother, and then the scales fall from his eyes. I think that it's deliberate. I don't think anything is left in scripture unintentionally. I think it's deliberate on God's part that when he experienced love from the family of God, he could see. See to it that every single person who comes to worship with us at the Redemption Church experiences the love of God. And if you come to the Redemption Church and you don't experience the love of God, I want you to tell me, because that means that we failed. Everyone who comes into your small group should experience the love of God. If you're coming to the Redemption Church, you're not introducing yourself to anybody, well, come on now. Put on your adult pants, all right? Introduce yourself to someone while you're at it and join a small group. If you go to a small group and you don't experience the love of God, then we failed. When Ananias reached out and put his hand on Saul and called him brother, the scales fell from his eyes and he could see. And now we have additional insight into what Ananias told Saul. He said, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth. He's going to be the author of much of the New Testament. Everything that Ananias said comes absolutely true through Saul. Since you will be a witness for him to, now don't miss these two words because they are critical, all people, not just the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. Remember the hostility, that wall of animosity between Gentile and Jew that we've talked about because it sets the whole historical paradigm for how Acts plays out. It, it's it's an overwhelming hostility that Jews had toward Gentiles. They would thank God every day that they weren't Gentiles. And now that the gospel has poured out upon these Gentiles who never kept the law of Moses, there's hostility. There's even further animosity. But Paul, God's consummate Jewish prodigy with utmost education, utmost pedigree, the most impressive resume in the whole Jewish world. He is the one chosen by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He personifies then the apex between the covenants old and new, the Old Testament to the New Testament, personifying Old Testament excellence and being called of God to now bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But he has in his heart, he has in his heart the Israelites. In in the book of Romans, he would say, if I could, I would give up my own salvation if my fellow Jews could be saved. 
He loves his own people so much, but he knows about their zeal for God, but it's not based in knowledge. He has this heart for Israel, but he knows that he's called to the Gentiles. Now watch how this plays out as he's standing before a largely Jewish crowd. He's been told by Ananias, what are you, why are you delaying? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Verse 17, he continues. After I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him telling me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. He said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Saul has his own, yeah, but God moment, doesn't he? But it's different from Ananias's. Ananias's, yeah, but God moment was like, that guy's going to kill me. Saul's yeah, but God moment is, but I've sinned too much. Does anybody else have that same kind of yeah, but God moment? At the thought of bringing the gospel up to your neighbor, the member of your family, your coworker, that complete stranger on the street when the Holy Spirit says, go, yeah, but God, I've struggled with alcohol in my past. I've messed, I'm a hypocrite. Who am I to talk about this stuff? Who am I to bring this up? They know about my past mistakes. They knew about Saul's public murder of Christians too. And God called Saul. Your yeah, but God moment won't go well. You know how God answered Saul? Look at the very first word in verse 21. He said to me, go. His yeah, but God moment is in verse 19 and 20. These people know about my past mistakes. For crying out loud, I publicly oversaw the murder of a Christian. They watched me do that. I even looked after the coats of the people who were throwing the stones. Yeah, but God, I can't do it because I've messed up. I used to persecute Christians. Now you expect me to act like one? God said, go. God specializes in using the unqualified to accomplish the miraculous so that it's clear who gets all the glory when he's done. Do you understand? If you think that you're too sinful to evangelize, then evidently you're taking way too much credit when you lead someone to Christ. When you share Christ with someone and they get saved, it's not because you did such a brilliant job living your Christian life. It's because the Holy Spirit of God just reached down and grabbed someone by the heart, you see? Your yeah, but God excuses will not fly. It didn't work for Ananias. It didn't work for Saul, and it won't work for you. So would you check your yeah, but God moments at the door to theater number one, please? This is Saul's yeah, but God moment, and then God's response is go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Again, remembering the cultural context is everything. Now, the the story is going to unfold further, and you need some historical insight to further appreciate what's really happening here. The the land of Israel changed hands multiple times throughout history, and there was a time when it was under the, the, the rule of the expanding empire of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great dies. The Ptolemaic Empire gives way to the Seleucid Empire, and Israel's right on the border between this district that was given to one of Alexander the Great's generals named Seleucids, and the other one was named Ptolemy. And as it, as it would swap hands, you would see this, 
authority that was kind of a cloud over Jerusalem shift. And every time, under every set of rulers they ever had, they just insisted upon their own way. They were, they were a stubborn people to rule because they knew we're God's chosen nation. God gave us this land. Who are you, Babylonian Empire? Who are you, Seleucid Empire? Who are you, Ptolemaic Empire? They, they just did what they did. And then along came Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the hammer. And he outlawed Jewish worship. And then there arose within the Jews, this family. There's a dude named Judas Maccabeus, and his nickname was the hammer. If your Catholic friend has a Bible that's thicker than yours, because it contains these extra texts called the Apocrypha, but your Catholic friend will be offended if you call it the Apocrypha. They call them the Deuterocanonical texts. Some of the apocryphal books are just spurious, they're untrue, we don't believe them, all right? I, I've read them, I've read Tobit, I've read Ecclesiasticus, it tells me not to play with my children, <laughs> all right? But there are books within the apocrypha that are historically accurate. Two of these are the books of Maccabees, because they, they recount this story of the Maccabean revolt. Judas Maccabeus defiantly carried out an act of ceremonial Jewish worship. When a guard came to stop the ceremony, he publicly killed the guard and continued the ceremony. And this inspired the Jews under the persecution of, of Antiochus Epiphanes to continue their worship. And eventually they were relegated to their own space where they could just continue worship in utter defiance of what the, 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 the ruling empire at the time dictated. Was it the Ptolemaic Empire at the time? Either way, Jewish worship was outlawed. Judas Maccabeus and his family took over and led worship. And this actually became a dynasty of worship leadership within the Jewish community. But then there arose a contestation because they said, wait a minute, the, the Maccabees aren't descended from the tribe of Levi. It was said from the very beginning that the Levites would be the ones who lead worship. You guys aren't qualified to lead worship. And so there was a schism the descendants of Levi rose up and said, no, we're going to lead worship. This was referred to as the Hasmonean dynasty. This was the, the generation wherein the Maccabees were leading worship and then they faced a schism because they weren't descended from Levi. It was on one side of the dispute, those who believed the Maccabees could lead worship and on the other side of the dispute, those who said, no, the Levites need to be the ones who lead worship. And this gave rise to the offices of Pharisee and Sadducee. All right, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees were sad, you see. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> they were sad because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Paul knows this. It was, it was ostensibly to try to mitigate this schism that Herod the Great was actually put in place in this Roman garrison. That was the one who was on, that was the one who was in charge when Jesus was born. So that's the background to the Sanhedrin. This is like that hot button issue that exists between the two sides. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. And, and, and Paul knows exactly what to say to get these two people to fight with each other. All right? For example, <laughs> man, it must, must be nice to have your football team play in the SEC can lose three games and still qualify for the playoffs. See? Maybe that causes more of a stir in the actual South. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll give you another one. Right, if you think about the, the rivalry that exists between Washington State and University of Washington, 
You know, if you think about, uh, you think about hot button issues within the city and personal preference, if, we, if you just know exactly what to say that's going to make the whole room just cut in half, okay? You just know exactly what to say that's going to cut the room in half. That's what Paul knew because of this division between Pharisee and Sadducee. When you combine the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priest family and the authors, the, the scribes of the law, that whole collective board was the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 22 with me. They listened to him up to this point. Then they raised their voices shouting, wipe this man off the face of the earth. He should not be allowed to live. So it's not going well. He just said exactly what they all together would not want to hear. What they both agreed on, Pharisee and Sadducee, is we are God's chosen nation. We are the Israelites. God chose us. We're the descendants of Abraham, and by our lineage, we have inherited this covenant. We are God's chosen people. Gentiles are the enemy of God. They're the persecutor of God's chosen people. Who are you to say you're going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles? So now they're unified in their opposition to Paul. And, and when you think about you and your story, and as you might do exactly what Paul did in a controversial setting, speak up and tell your story, would you just do a quick inventory and imagine a series of worst case scenarios, all right? You're in a meeting and someone just brings it up, all right? Say it's a marketing meeting and you've got this product, you're going to bring it to launch and they're like, hmm, this might appeal well to those stupid Christian people. Hey, Joe, you're a stupid Christian. Why don't you weigh in on the market demographic? We should aim this at. This is your moment. This is your chance. It just, or, or when you're in a private conversation with a coworker over coffee and it comes up and you feel that prompting of the spirit, bring up the gospel, tell your story, bring up the gospel. All right, when you think about your worst case scenario, it's probably this. Okay, I mean, imagine how it's going to unfold. You share your life before Christ, and then you talk about how you came to know Christ. You even share a Bible verse, and you talk about what life has been like since you've known Christ, and you tell your story, and then their response could be one of numerous things. In all likelihood, it could be just something like, thank you for sharing that with me. I've never heard that before. But the worst case scenario would be something like, you don't deserve to live. Like, that would be as bad as it gets. That is exactly what just happened to Paul. All right, if you share your testimony and it ends with you getting smacked in the face, that's a worst case scenario. If it ends with an awkward social moment, that's a worst case scenario. Did you know that right now in Afghanistan, if you share your faith, there's a very different worst case scenario. They gather and they confess Christ. They will likely die, but they gather anyway. Do you think that a Christian in Afghanistan right now would like to trade worst case scenarios with you? I think we can do more. I think we can share more. I think if our worst case scenario is an awkward social encounter, a demotion at work, or even losing your job, I think we can do more. Look at what your God is capable of. He called Paul to do this. Paul does it. It ends with this whole crowd saying, wipe this man off the face of the earth. He should not be allowed to live. Look at verse 23. As they were yelling and flinging aside their garments and throwing dust into the air. Look at this tantrum. 
the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, directing that he be interrogated with the scourge to discover the reason they were shouting against him like this. As they stretched him out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? Uh-oh. Paul gets saucy about his rights, and he should, while he still had them. It wouldn't be long until the Roman Empire would turn on Christianity. The persecution would begin. In fact, Paul himself would be killed by the next emperors. Nero would take over. The mass slaughter of Christians would begin. So while you've got the freedom to share your faith, Christian, share it proud. And then when it becomes illegal, share it again. (laughs) So Paul knows what his rights are. And he's playing those rights. So those who were about to examine him withdrew immediately. The commander, too, was alarmed when he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him. The next day, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and placed him before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law, you are ordering me to be struck. Those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul, for it is written, you must not speak evil of the ruler of your people, quoting from the book of Exodus. So what just happened here? They have gotten carried away in this mob mentality. It happened at the temple to Artemis. It happened now in Jerusalem. And now the Romans are getting carried away. And so they've bound Paul. They're scourging Paul. They order that Paul gets struck on the mouth. And all of this is an utter miscarriage of justice. It's all in violation of Paul's rights. And Paul gets saucy about his Roman rights. And then he calls out the priest as well for ordering him to be struck. He is right, by the way. In his accusation to say that you are accusing me of violating the law and you are violating the law by ordering that I be struck. Paul is right. But now he exhibits this submission to authority even while authority is incorrect. He cites the book of Exodus knowing that you're not to speak evil of the ruler of your people. In what context was this? Right, in what context was this? Because it's, it's, a, it's a cherished American tradition to criticize leadership So how do we apply this verse, Jesse? Well, here's the thing. This was in the context of a theocratic Old Testament Israel. Because who was the ruler of the people? It was God's anointed leader over them. This was God-anointed leadership in a theocratic nation state in Old Testament Israel. What we live in in America today is not a theocracy. It's built upon a theological idea, but it's not theocratic in nature And so what Paul exhibits was a God-honoring submission to the high priest while the high priest was wrong. We've seen this before in the context of Israel through King David. He was the guy who slew Goliath and was very clearly anointed by God to be the next king of Israel while Saul, not this Saul, the original Saul, if you will, was on the throne. And Saul was absolutely paranoid about David. 
And he would throw a spear at David. He would, have, he would try to have David killed numerous times. And all the while, all the while, David just respected Saul as God's anointed authority over him. He would not touch God's anointed. He would submit to God's anointed authority over him. It was the same nation. It was Israel. In fact, at the very beginning of its monarchical era, David knew that is the first king of Israel. And even though he throws spears at me sometimes, like he's God's anointed. I'm not going to touch God's anointed authority. That, that's a big deal in ancient Israel. You can see that that may have been on Saul's mind when he thought, okay, if David could have a spear thrown at him and still submit to Saul's authority, then I can be smacked in the face and still submit to this high priest because he knows his context. He is in Jerusalem speaking to a Jewish high priest. And he knows now, he knows that if he quotes this text, you do not speak evil of God's leader among you, that it's about this guy. So he's exhibiting remarkable restraint remarkable self-control. They've smacked him on the face. They've scourged him in violation of his rights as a Roman and in a violation of the very law of God that they're citing. Now let's continue in the text. Verse six, when Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, uh-oh, do you remember the story? The Hasmonean dynasty, the Maccabean revolt, do you remember what they disagreed upon? The Pharisees believed there was one. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the what? The resurrection. He's going to go there. He is going to look them all in the eye and just press this button and then watch what happens. So they were all united against him when he said he was called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He's about to divide them between each other. He's going to go there. He's going to say that thing you're never supposed to say in front of the collective Sanhedrin. Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. There it is. Watch what happens next. It about, is about to erupt. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them all. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party got up and argued vehemently, we find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? Suddenly, look at what Paul's done. They're on his side. Hey, maybe God's talking through him. And when the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them. Okay, again, think about your worst case scenario. If you share your faith, it's not this bad. Do you think you could share more? Do you think you could speak up a little bit louder about the gospel? I think so. Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them and bring them into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, have courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. After everything that Paul has been through, after the riot at the temple of Artemis, after the riot in Jerusalem, after the sham of a trial, now before the Sanhedrin, after they shout out, this man does not deserve to live, rid the earth of him. Like they're all against him. And then when he brings up the resurrection, the Pharisees are like, well, I don't know. Maybe there's an angel speaking through him. 
He has been scourged. He has been bound all of, in violation of his Roman rights. He has been slapped across the face of the order of the high priest to whom he later submitted. This is a catastrophe both on the Jewish front and on the Roman front. This riot has gotten fully out of hand and Caesar would never tolerate such a thing. But this is the background to what would lead to further Christian persecution. And all the while, despite it all, Paul knows his story. That's what started this. He knows his story. He has encountered Jesus. He knows what Jesus has done in his life. He knows what he's watched Jesus do in other people's lives. He has watched the resurrected Jesus transform the Gentile world. And he knows that he knows that he knows that Jesus is alive in him. He believes in the resurrection. He holds fast to that confession. And it doesn't matter how many times he's smacked. It doesn't matter how many times he's bound by chains. It doesn't matter how many times he is scourged with a whip. None of them is going to dissuade him of his testimony. They can shout out, rid the earth of this man. He doesn't deserve to live. But Paul sits there just knowing, knowing, knowing his story. He knows what Jesus has done. Seattle Christian, you know your Jesus. You know your story. You know that you know that you know that he saved you. He's always been faithful to you. He's always provided for you. He's brought you thus far. And even when you drifted away, he never went anywhere. You know your story. It doesn't matter what they say about you, how badly they slander you. It doesn't matter about your past failures. What matters is Jesus is alive and you've been called here now. That's what matters. You've been brought to the front lines of revival in America. Do you understand what happens here moves eastward? Do you know what happens here influences the rest of culture? You have an opportunity. Being vastly outnumbered as Christians does not give us a disadvantage. It means that you have more opportunity to bear fruit for the kingdom of God than people in other parts of the U.S., because this same gospel, this same exact gospel that Paul exhibits such confidence in is yours. It's the same testimony. It's the same Jesus. Have you ever been to a testimony sharing night where people come up and they tell their stories? All right, and, and like the guy who is in front of you, right, you're already nervous to share your testimony and there's this guy who gets up to share his testimony before you and he says, I used to be a cannibal. And now, I'm a Christian. And I've started 500 orphanages all across the known world. And everyone's like, wow, that is a powerful testimony. And then it's your turn to share your testimony. And your testimony goes like, I was saved when I was six. I'm still saved. So you feel the need to embellish the drama of your testimony because the, the cannibal dude got up before you. And you're like, I was so lost. I colored way outside the lines. I did not sing along with Barney. And I stayed up way past eight. But now I go to bed right on time. You don't need to make your testimony sound more dramatic, okay? The, the power of a testimony is in the spirit who transforms. And the same exact spirit who transformed that cannibal who got up before you, all right, pray for him if he ever backslides. 
That same Holy Spirit that transformed your cannibal friend is the same Holy Spirit who transformed Paul, is the same Holy Spirit who transformed you. You don't need to embellish your testimony one iota. Do you understand? Your story is your story. We live in a day and an age wherein your personal experience is actually being elevated in a way that I think is epistemologically weak, meaning this is my personal experience, this is my lived experience, I have lived through this, I have experienced this, therefore it is unassailable for criticism. That's actually a logical fallacy, but you as a Christian can use it to your advantage. This is my lived experience, I've experienced Jesus, he has delivered me from the consequences of my own sin, and every time I fall, he picks me back up again. This is my lived experience. Who are they to argue with you and correct you? Hey, tell me how that would go. Listen, look, I know you think you know your own life. Let me correct you. Here's what you actually experience. Like, who's going to do that? We live in an age wherein epistemologically, meaning our study of truth itself and how we know things, coming from the Greek word pistueo, like I believe, what we believe and how we know what we believe is accurate is largely un- under attack because if, you just, if you've experienced something, that means that it is your truth. That's a, that's a term. That's an Oprah term, right? Your truth. There is no your truth and my truth. There is the truth. And I try to make sure that I live according to this. And when my truth, if you will, and this truth are in conflict, one of us is wrong. And guess what? It's not God. So your story, your experience right now, in a way, has more respect than it did before. Epistemologically, it's a weakness of our culture to say, you can't argue with someone's lived experience. What they went through is unassailable and true. Well, if that's the way you feel, can I tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because that's my lived experience. The difference is that what you're saying is the way, the truth, and the life. If their stories get to be told, so does yours. It's only fair. It's only fair. So use that to your advantage. But acknowledge, acknowledge, acknowledge the epistemological weakness of elevating experientialism as a paradigm for truth. Because you could go through something that is totally Totally accurate from your perspective, but doesn't represent the whole. I had a neighbor in Nashville. He was a hospitalist. He worked in the emergency room. And all he saw for days straight on his shifts was the worst things that happened to people constantly. All right, his job was to like reattach fingers. Okay, that's like a Tuesday for him. And after that, he's got to like take a lawnmower blade out of someone's leg. And so he goes through this lived experience day in and day out, okay, reattaching fingers and helping people get over stuff. And and then he goes back home and he goes to our neighborhood in Nashville where we live. And we would sometimes just host parties. We would project movies onto our garage door and we'd have a fire pit there with roasted marshmallows. And we would invite everybody to just come hang out in our driveway. It got out of hand. Our neighbors just would call us while we were out of town. Hey, can we use your driveway? (laughs) And sure, they burned my grill. I didn't know that was possible, but grills apparently burn. It's worth it because like, we loved our neighbors. Well, this neighbor of mine had this view of the world that at times was tainted by his lived experience. Because here's the thing, even though you're on the front lines in the emergency room seeing people who are hurting, you're not in the maternity wing where there are babies being born. And it's an amazing day. That's the one wing of the hospital you go to and you go home happy. 
You, you, if, if this is your lived experience and all you see is people's misery, you can take that and stretch it like a swim cap over all of epistemology and say like, this is what life is like. I know I'm on the front lines. I see it. But here's the thing. You only live where it really stinks. And so as a result, you can have a skewed view of reality. In our upcoming apologetic series, we're going to get M&Ms. Okay. And the objective here is you're going to get a fun-sized pack of M&Ms, and I'm going to ask you to tell me, based on your sample size, how many green M&Ms the local Mars factory produces, how many blue M&Ms the Mars factory produces. And based on those handful of M&Ms, you're going to make your projected outcome. And I'm going to show you the actual stats. Your own lived experience is not an authoritative enough sample size to actually project truth. However, our culture is still elevating lived experiences as though that's proof positive and unassailable truth. Use that to your advantage. This is my lived experience. This is my story. But Jesse, how do I, how do I build my testimony? How do I do this? All right, take out your smartphones now, if you will. If you don't have a smartphone, it's okay. We have hard copies of this available in the table at the back. It's just a simple three-step paradigm for how you can build your testimony. And you can see how it's laid out according to the different parts of the Redemption Church logo. This was my life before Christ. I was dead in my sin. You can share at this point the things that you tried that didn't work. And then there came a moment there came a moment where you confessed Jesus as Lord. That was a miracle of the Holy Spirit of God. No one can say Jesus is Lord except for by the Holy Spirit. That was a miracle. Every testimony is a miracle. It doesn't matter how dramatic the transformation the before and the after is. This is not a reality show. This is actual reality. Your testimony has all the miraculous power of Saul's because you worship the same God as Paul. So you have the same power in your testimony. You tell them the story. Share a Bible verse that was particularly transformative for you. You guys can all probably guess one that was transformative for me because I've been sharing it for 30 years <laughs> ever since. And then talk about life since Christ. What's different now? What's different now? And include even your redemption from past failures. Let's be clear here. My skeptical friend, Thank you for letting me speak largely to Christians during this message. But I want you to know, when you give your life to Christ, it's not like you're not permitted to mess up, okay? This is an ongoing redemptive process. And as we said at the beginning, when you fall, you get back up again. So this is available on redemptionwashington.com. Just go to the main page. Hey, Jesse, did you purposefully put it below the curriculum so that I'd have to scroll past it and know that it's there? Yeah, I did, Gary. Jesse, did you purposefully put this below the place where I could sign a connect card and tell you what's going on with my life so I could, I could be prayed for? That's right, Gerald. Jesse, did you purposefully put this at the bottom of the page so that I have to see everything that's going on in our church? Yes, yes, I did. Go fill out a connect card and let us know what's going on with you. Click the second box, sign up for baptism, and download your testimony template. Use this as a building block for how you tell your story. You've heard my story. You've seen Paul share his story. And now it's your turn to share your story. This is how. And if you don't have a smartphone, you can grab a hard copy at the table in the back on your way out. Here's one last thing about these stories, these testimonies. I believe that there are stories that will be written in this room today because we've seen Paul share his story. And I believe that if the Holy Spirit of God has compelled you 
You've been on the sidelines of Christianity. You come here not because you yourself are compelled of Christ, but because you came to see what people are blogging about. You came to see out of morbid curiosity what comes next. You came here because you have a crush on one of my church members. You came here for the food. You came here for whatever. You came here for the music. I don't know what it was, but you came here for some other reason, and what you got instead was the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is your story. This is your moment. This is where you experience the same Holy Spirit that drew upon Paul on the road to Damascus. That exact story is unfolding right here in this room. Here's the story. You and I, all of us, we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus himself said, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way we can come to God the Father except through Jesus. And right now, by the Holy Spirit of God, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. This is your story, and it's unfolding right now. My formerly skeptical, ever-increasingly convinced friend, that same Holy Spirit who transformed Paul is the one drawing on your heart right now. So there's a team here at the front ready to pray with you. If you need to give your life to Christ, or if you need to be baptized, or if you need to share your story. You need to bring up your testimony and share the gospel with your coworkers, with your family, with your neighbors, with anyone. We're right here for you. I believe that God is about the business of writing redemption stories. We have seen Saul's story unfold. You've heard bits of my story, and I believe that your story, my skeptical friend, is being written right now. That drawing on your heart from darkness to light, from sin to repentance, from death to life, is the Holy Spirit of God. The very Spirit, and we're praying, brings revival to this city. So I want you to pray with me now the words of God back to God. This is your story. This is your moment. This is the day where you pass from death to life. Pray with me now. Jesus, I believe it's all true. I confess it, God. I'm like Saul on the road, breathing out murderous threats. If you could hear the things I told my steering wheel on the drive here, God, I am just like him. And then came you. Then he encountered Jesus. And I wasn't expecting this. I came for the coffee. And instead I found a savior. I've met Jesus in this place. I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess that the wages of that sin is death. But the eternal gift of God, the eternal gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus, I believe you. I believe you are the way. I believe you are the truth. I believe you are the life. And I know there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you, Jesus. So by the very same Holy Spirit who converted Saul on the road to Damascus, that same Holy Spirit is here in this room right now drawing on my heart. By that same Holy Spirit, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Redemption Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, save me. Save me, God. Save me. In Jesus' name, amen.